Good morning. Please turn to Genesis chapter 12 this morning. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10 and going all the way down to chapter 13, verse 18. Last week, we traced the genealogy of Shem down to Abram, later known as Abraham. We talked about the promises God gave to Abram, including the promise to give him the land of the Canaanites, to make his descendants into a great nation, and to make his name great. God also promised to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him, and that in Abram, all nations, peoples, or Gentiles of the world would be blessed. This morning, we're going to talk about two stories. The first one is a shocking story about Abram and giving up his wife, Sarai. The second one is about conflict between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of his nephew, Lot. Before we start, let's pray. Lord, as we look at these 4,000-year-old stories, true stories, we often struggle to see what relevance they have for us today. Open our eyes, Lord, to what you have for us this morning. Help us see how these stories apply to us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 12, verse 10 says, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. It's hard to know what to make of this. After all, God had promised the land of Canaan to Abram. Why would he leave it? Why didn't he just trust God to supply his needs during the famine? After all the faith it took Abram to travel over a thousand miles from his homeland and civilization to come to this land, was Abram's faith now wavering? On the other hand, when you don't have food, you don't have food. And as we will see, God abundantly provided for Abram and Sarai in Egypt. So maybe this is a story about God's sovereignty and blessing. Let's read about it, starting in verse 11. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. This is a shocking story to us. We struggle to understand how Abram could be such a scumbag as to pawn off his own wife just to save his own neck. We wonder how poor Sarai must have felt by her husband's cowardice and lack of concern for her. We have to be careful, however, not to jump to conclusions. Someone once said, history is like a foreign country. They do things differently there. We have to remember that this happened over 4,000 years ago in a very different country with a very different culture. They didn't necessarily think like we do. When I was a young kid, I remember my mom talking about the Soviet Union and how terrible it was that mothers there had to work outside the home and leave their kids in daycare. She just couldn't imagine anything so terrible. Something that is accepted and even celebrated in our world today was unthinkable to her. And that was probably only 50 or 60 years ago. So we can't automatically assume that Abram and Sarai thought like we do. But with that in mind, let's think about their situation. The text says the famine was severe. 
Now, Haran was twice as far away as Egypt, so it could be that going back to Haran wasn't an option. For all we know, the little food they had left might not hold out for such a long journey. So from their perspective, if they go back to Haran, they might starve on the way. And on the other hand, if they stay in the land of Canaan of the Canaanites, they might starve there also. But on the other hand, we're running out of hands. If they go to Egypt, Abram might be killed and Sarah taken as someone's wife. What are they supposed to do? What would you do? They decided to go to Egypt. Abram asked Sarai to say that she is his sister, which is a half-truth. According to chapter 20, verse 12, she and Abram had the same father, Terah, but not the same mother. But why would Sarai agree to such a plan? After all, she did go along with it. We will find out later that Pharaoh didn't know Sarai was Abram's wife, and that could only be true if Sarai went along with Abram's scheme. We might think that maybe Sarai didn't have any power to resist, but later on in Genesis, we find that Sarai was fully capable of standing up for herself and confronting Abram. So I don't think she was the powerless victim. Sarai seems to have been a willing participant. But what choice did she really have? She could stay in Canaan and starve, or she could, could uh, go with Abraham to Egypt and re reject his plan and risk having to witness the murder of her husband, or she could go to Egypt and go along with the plan. Ladies, what would you do? But history is like a foreign country. They do things differently there. An Old Testament scholar named Alan Ross gives some helpful background on the situation. He writes, in enemy territory, a husband could be killed for his wife. But if Abram were known as her brother, someone wanting her would have to make marriage arrangements with him. So as Sarai's husband, someone could have to kill Abram to get Sarai. But as Sarai's brother, someone would have to negotiate with him in order to marry her. And presumably, Abram could always reject the offer. Or at least, as Ross goes on to speculate, the negotiations could give him time to stall and plan his next move. In other words, Abram may have actually come up with a brilliant plan designed to protect Sarai, not give her away. Unfortunately, complications arise. Let's read about it, starting in verse 14. When Abram became, or came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. Now, the complication was that it wasn't just an ordinary Egyptian who wanted Sarai. It was the Pharaoh himself. Sarai caught the attention of some of Pharaoh's officials. Now, Moses doesn't tell us how that happened. Maybe Abram and Sarai had to go to Pharaoh's officials in order to buy grain. Whatever the case, Pharaoh's officials praised the beauty of Sarai to the Pharaoh. Pharaoh, of course, had all the power. He didn't have to negotiate for anything. But even if he chose to negotiate, he could pay any dowry Abram asked. The fact that Abram got very rich in Egypt may mean he asked a lot. So Pharaoh apparently made Abram an offer he could not refuse, at least not if he wanted to live. And Pharaoh brought Sarai into his palace, that is to say, his harem. <clears throat> and according to verse 19, Sarai became his wife. 
Now, I don't know if that necessarily means they went to bed together right away. Pharaoh undoubtedly had many wives, and there may have been several days or weeks of preparation before being brought into the king, which is how it was with Queen Esther's time. We can only imagine what Sarai thought of all this, but we do know what God that God was not well pleased. Verse 17 says that God or that the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. Now, I don't know if these diseases were a punishment for the sin Pharaoh didn't know he had committed or was about to commit, or whether this was just a way of getting Pharaoh's attention and protecting Sarai from the consummation of her marriage to Pharaoh. We don't know how Pharaoh finally connected the dots and realized that these serious illnesses were because of Sarai, but Pharaoh somehow figured it out, or it was revealed to him. And verse 18 says, So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men. And they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Now, I've been telling this story from an entirely human perspective. I was kind of justifying or excusing what Abram did based on the fact that he didn't have much of a choice. But there is another aspect of this story to consider. First, it's interesting that one thing Abram is not recorded as doing is praying. There is no hint that he ever sought God's guidance. And second, God personally appeared to Abram on at least two separate occasions, promising to give him the land of the Canaanites. These appearances were not just vague impressions like today when people say God spoke to me. These were visual, audible appearances by God in which God gave very specific promises about the land and Abram's descendants. By going to Egypt, Abram was leaving the land God had promised him, and by giving Sarai to Pharaoh, Abraham was, apart from divine intervention, throwing away his chance for the descendants God had promised. Fortunately, there was divine intervention. God was not going to let Abram's failure of faith torpedo God's promises. God was not about to let Satan use Pharaoh to destroy God's plan that in Abram's descendant, Christ, all the nations of the world would be blessed. So God intervenes, and by His grace, and Abraham and Sarah, by His grace, Abram and Sarah go free, and ended up being blessed in the process. Verse sixteen says that Pharaoh treated Abram well for Sarai's sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. And I think this is the main point of the passage. Regardless of Abram's sin and failure of faith, God was beginning to fulfill his promise to bless Abram. In fact, in chapter 13, this blessing is reaffirmed. Verses 1 and 2 say, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. The fact that this point about Abram becoming very wealthy is repeated is an indication that this is the point of the story. In chapter 12, God had promised to bless Abram, and that is exactly what God was beginning to do. In fact, God even curses Pharaoh with diseases for taking Abram's wife, 
God said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, which, as you can see on the map on the back of your bulletin, is between the Sinai Peninsula and the southern part of Israel. Verse 3 says, from the Negev, he went from the play, from place to place until he came to Bethel, which you will find in the middle of your map. Then according to verses 3 to 7, they continued wandering in the land, occupied by Canaanites and Perizzites, apparently looking for enough unoccupied land for both Abram and Lot's grave livestock to graze. The lack of sufficient grazing land caused tension and fighting between Abram's herders and Lot's herders. So in verses 8 and 9, Abram proposes a solution. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now, Abram was the uncle, and Lot was the nephew. Abram was the elder, and Lot was the younger. Abram was blessed by Pharaoh with great wealth and servants, which equals power, and Lot was not. In other words, Abram held all the cards in this deal, so to speak. Abram could have just chosen for himself what land he wanted, and there's really nothing Lot could have done about it. In fact, in that culture, I'm sure it would have been expected that Abram should have got the better deal. But not so with Abram. He gave the choice to his nephew, Lot. So in verse 10, Lot looked around and saw the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abram gave Lot the choice, and Lot selfishly chose the better land for himself and ended up settling near Sodom, which may have had fertile land in Abram's time, but as verse 10 says, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 13 adds, Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Moses is foreshadowing future events here. He is preparing you for the story in chapter 19, when Sodom and Gomorrah will be destroyed, but Lot and his family will be saved by grace. The text is hinting that Lot's selfish choice was not a wise one. On the other hand, after Abram and Lot separated, God appeared to Abram again and reaffirmed his promise about the land. In verses 14 and 15, God told Abram, Look around from where you are to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. This was now the third time God promised to give the land to Abram's descendants. And as we saw last week, that promise will be narrowed down in Genesis to Isaac, not Ishmael, to Jacob or Israel, not Esau. The promises are to the children of Israel. Verse 15 says that the land will be their possession forever. The land of Israel was given by God to the Jews as a permanent, everlasting possession. In verse 16, God also promises to make Abram's descendants like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. <clears throat> this is a metaphor, of course, meaning that Abram will have a lot of descendants. 
This probably seemed impossible to Abram, however, since he and Sarah were getting old, and Sarai was barren. But more on that in coming weeks. Verse 18 says that Abram settled down in Hebron, which, as you can see on your map, is just south of Salem, later known as Jerusalem. So what do we learn from this passage? I just want to make three observations. First, I think these are stories illustrating the promises that God gave to Abram in chapter 12. God promised to bless Abram, and sure enough, that's exactly what God does in both of these stories. Chapter 13, verse 2 says that Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. In spite of his failure of faith, God was indeed blessing Abram. The story of Abram and Lot is also a story of blessing. Even though Lot selfishly chose the better land in that location, God promises to give all the land of the Canaanites to Abram as a permanent possession. God promises to bless Abram, and God blessed him with financial and material prosperity. Now those in the health, wealth, and prosperity movement would point out that Galatians 3 and Romans 11, Paul makes it clear that those who have faith in Christ are the sons of Abraham. We, believing Gentiles, will inherit the promises God made to Abram, along with believing Jews. Believers, therefore, inherit the promises of prosperity given to Abram if we just have enough faith, or so they say. But the blessing Abram received in Egypt was in spite of his lack of faith, not because of his faith. And besides that, According to Paul, the blessing of Abram that is inherited by believing Jews and Gentiles is the blessing of salvation. Paul never promises physical prosperity or financial success in this lifetime. Certainly the prophets, Jesus, Paul, or other apostles were not blessed with physical or financial prosperity. Why would we think we would be? The complete fulfillment of the promises made to Abram are not entirely fulfilled until Jesus comes back. In that time, we will not only receive the land, we will inherit the earth, as Jesus said. We will also have prosperity in God's kingdom. Until then, Jesus, Paul, and Peter all warn that we will have suffering, not prosperity. Second, chapter 13, verse 15 says, All the land that you see I will give you and your offspring forever. I believe that God gave the land of Israel to the Jews as a permanent, everlasting possession. Although Assyrians, Babylonians, Romans, Muslims, and British have controlled or occupied the land at various times, Jews have always lived there, and the land belongs to them. They have a right to protect it. And since God will bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them, I think America's foreign policy should be to stand by Israel and help them protect the land. And I think that issue should be a factor in how we vote. One final observation has to do with the nature of faith. Abram was a man of faith. God called him to leave the security and comfort of the most advanced civilization on earth to travel to a land that turned out to be about a thousand miles away, where he would not have safety, security, or comfort. And Abram believed and obeyed God. He was a man of faith. And yet his faith was not perfect. The first time hardship arose, he did not seek God's counsel, but
but abandoned the land God had promised, traveled to Egypt and lied about his wife in an attempt to save his own neck. All of this was due to a failure of faith on his part. It's also important to note that the blessings God gave to Abram came because of God's promises by grace, and not because Abram was such a wonderful or righteous person. Leaving the promised land and giving up his wife were both evidence of failure of faith, to say the least. The fact is that if Abram had trusted God and had been honest with Pharaoh, Pharaoh would have left Abram and Sarai alone. We know that because when Pharaoh finds out that Sarai is Abram's wife, he doesn't kill Abram. He lets Abram and Sarai go with all of their wealth. So Abram's faith was not perfect, and neither is ours. In fact, our faith will never be perfect just until Jesus comes back. We often fail, but when we do, we confess our sins to the one who is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as 1 John tells us. And then we move on, striving once again to live a life pleasing to God. Not in order to be saved, of course, but because God's blessing of salvation is given to us by grace through faith. Let's pray. Lord, strengthen our faith. Help us to have the kind of faith Abram had when he left the safety, comfort, and security of Ur to follow you. Keep us from the failure of faith Abram had when he abandoned your promises to go to Egypt. And Lord, if anyone here does not have the kind of faith that repents of their sin and turns to follow you, don't let them rest until they commit their lives to you in faith. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.